0: Okay, let's pray and. My Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord. I thank God for the murderers and the cursors. instruct our hearts more and more in how to live with an invisible Savior for His glory. This is your Son's name. Amen. Alright, if you want to, you can open your Bibles to John chapter 16. Where we're going to be. We're going to finish out John chapter 16 this morning. And there's just one more chapter in our upper discourse. We've been studying John 13 through 17. For the last couple of weeks. And last week we didn't finish. We didn't finish the section of verses we were on. So I'm gonna really kinda go of over through them really quick because we've got materially covered today. But in John chapter 16, verses five through fifteen, we were looking at the ministry of So, John 16, 12 15 says, I speak to you, and I still have many things to say to you that you cannot bear to ask. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own. Some of you listen, or you speak, or you hear, We talk, we declare, or you think of our son, or you teaching, why does the spirit, why, what truth does the spirit guide over we to what truth is he revealing, isn't it that he's here, he will everything he might be in. We go to Hebrews, chapter 1. To abide by the Spirit. So there's an inter Trinitarian relationship that is, uh, has been there since before the foundation of the world where they all glorify each other, they all love each other perfectly, they relationship perfectly. So you don't even have to say that. Better, it's is better for to go, but yet I'm always going to be with you. It's like the circuit starts to break and pop and think about it. You can't twist your brain in knots. But Vicki the, the sucked body could only be in one place. Jesus Christ's body when he was on earth could only be in one place. The Holy Ghost can be everywhere at one and take on my our letters from the to heaven the their priests, the to use the church as a them as he had done Out John chapter 16, verses 16 through 33. At this point in time, remember Jesus is no longer in the upper room with the disciples. They are uh, making their short trek through Jerusalem in the middle of the night, walking east past the temple toward uh, the Kidron Valley, where they will cross that valley, and then enter into the Garden of Gethsemane. And all along the way, he is going to talk to them, instruct them, encourage them, encourage them, and then, verse, then chapter 16 is going to pray, pray for them. But in chapter 16, Jesus is his, final, he is his final encouragement and peace to the disciples. This is the last thing that he's going to teach them before he prays. Honestly, we learn a lot from this prayer. But this is the last thing he's going to get. And the introduction, I wrote this in the final verses, of John 16, John concludes the time of teaching in his discourse by before The whole thrust of these final verses is found in the last verse, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. So in this section, as we read through it, Jesus gives final provisions for peace. God's grace sustains believers through their failures and troubles, through joy, prayer, clarifying revelation, and courage. Jesus says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. Again, a little while, and you will see me. So, some of his disciples said to one another, "What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. Again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father." So they were saying, "What does he mean by a little while?" We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew, but they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourself? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Here at the beginning, Jesus will Here a little bit, a little while, you're not going to see me any longer. And again, a little while, you'll see me. Things you could be talking about there. Heaven's resurrection? In, in a little while, you're not going to see me anymore. We're talking about a death? In a little while, you won't see me. That's another interpretation. Okay, yeah. They're going uh, to live out their lives and not. And then when they die in heaven, I think they're in the first place. Yeah? Second coming. in the end. is going to be his departure to the return of ascension. After his resurrection, he spends about a month uh, with his disciples, teaching them some more, and then he ascends into heaven. So it could be, hey, I'm going to go, I'm leaving, but you'll see him here. Okay, we're 20. In verse twenty says really to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. In light of the weeping, what departure did you have in mind? A little bit. You know. at that door and then we'll start to we come back Just in the context of what we read the- Judging based on the questions the disciples asked in verses 17 to 18, we kind of gather that it's still struggling with the, the going like, what does he mean? A little while, he's going to be going, and coming back. And the disciples even reference back to earlier chapter 14 when Jesus says, I'm going to be the Father. And they're like, what does he mean? A little while, he's leaving. Um, and, and this is the context of a few of the disciples walking in the road to Emmaus. And if you recall, Jesus uh, appears and walks with them. and veils his identity from them so they don't know that it it's Jesus. And he hears his disciples talking. And he goes over there and he's like, Oh, what are you guys talking about? This is what, in verse 17. What is it? He said to them. What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, "Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days?" "Oh, And he said to them. "What things?" And they said to him, "Concerning, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and his people." And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Here's the key verse. Here's the presupposition that the disciples and the Jews were struggling with. Verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since he came to happen. We had hoped he was going to redeem us. Think about the Egyptian, as uh, Exodus, kind of language, the idea of redemption, purchasing somebody out of slavery, setting Israel free from slavery in Egypt. That's the be here. We thought we was going to set us free from bondage to Rome, from bondage to our enemy. We have been in bondage ever since we were in Babylonian captivity. Yes, we were set free, but we have been struggling ever since and oppressed. We thought the Messiah was we going to come and set us free. Now it's the third day since he's been married. They were without hope. They were sorrow. They were sad. They were missing the big picture. That's why they were so happy. they had to part of the scriptural truth, right? Jesus. Their savior brutally flogged, beaten, mocked, spit upon, watching the one who they knew was the Son of God being derided, crucified, stripped down, publicly shamed. And that he over two feet of you small three of English that sit by your right side to later, you can get sure that with that process, and the relief you see, you feel once that baby is born, It's was hurting and I know what the doctors were doing. So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will consider from you. Why is a believer's joy unassailable, indestructible? of our faith is unfair. The object of our joy, the source of our joy is unchanging, immovable, indestructible. Absolutely. I think that's why you know we just chapter 4, you you can be commanded to rejoice. You are commanded to have an emotion. Isn't that interesting? Commanded to have an emotion. You're commanded to rejoice in the Lord, He is the source of direction. We river, the stream of Your joy. in the Lord always. God is in absolute control and will bring our good in time. It is an emotion, but it's a settled confidence. In what about God? That He is absolutely in control of every situation you face, no matter how dark, and that He has a good purpose for that situation, both for your good and benefit. And for a good school. When we have our priorities ordered right from behind, when we seek first the kingdom of God, when we can pray, as Jesus taught his disciples, um, our Father, our Lord, hallowed, your name be honored, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the first part of his prayer that, that sets the tone for everything else. That's what I want first and foremost. When we have right priorities, then we can have a right definition of joy. Happiness is based on circumstances. Right? Happiness, Happiness. Joy is based on the Lord. And who he is and what he has done. It's a it's an emotion that derives itself from trusting in God and His purposes and His wisdom. That's why when we face suffering, when we face hardship, we can still have joy. Joy does not mean you're always ready. It Doesn't mean you're always joyful. But it is an emotion of confidence in God and His purposes. Just as False is the preservative that protects meat from decay, so joy is the spiritual preservative that protects faith from from decay. Christians should be known as joyful. It is a cure of the spirit. It is what the things that make us distinct from the world It is one of the things that shows that we have been transformed. supernaturally helps us stand apart from the world we have joy not just in things that are good but in all circumstances rejoice in the Lord always because it's in the Lord that so that's the first thing he did with us his resurrection secures our joy and enables us to have peace while we are living life with an invisible Savior. That's the first thing. The second thing, second provision, Jesus leads us prayer. Verses 23 and 24. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing of me. That your joy may be full. So one of the things we when we look at this text we have to ask, what is Jesus talking about is that day? What what is that? This doesn't mean uh, uh, again, speaking about end time per day. A lot of times when you're studying like Revelation or something like that day, the day of judgment, The day this isn't necessarily the resurrection either. In that day is referring to the time between Jesus' second coming and his ascension. The time where they have the spirit indwelling in the church. the day of Pentecost until the return. And so Jesus is saying, in that day, in that time period, and not a single day, but in that time period, you going to ask And I'm going to ask Jesus. Why don't the disciples, do you remember, speaking primarily to the apostles, why don't these disciples ask Jesus about anything in that day? Yeah. Yep. So we have a direct relationship to God because of what Christ has done. I think that's why he says that. But then as, uh, as uh, Dwayne was pointing out there, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you. So anytime you see truly, truly, it's just in the Greek amen, amen. It's uh, something where it says, hey, listen up. Listen up. This is important. I attention underline this in your Bible. This is what I'm about to say. Everything I say is true. This is really important. Truly, truly, I say to you. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Again, we talked about a uh, little bit Jesus brought came up in the early There's got some some things that you put on your prayers that make it happen. There's a couple ancient nations here the that makes your prayer sanctified. pray in Jesus' name and pray in accordance with His will. we understand what Jesus praying for That's Jesus directly, But now Jesus need I'm Then carry out God's will, God God, will be that Mm honestly. Nuance. That's the new thing in Jesus' name. That was a privilege that. formed one time and has ongoing effects. So for example, Jesus, when he says, it is finished, it is at one point done, the act of his atoning work on Christ, but it is continually impacting our lives all throughout eternity. That's kind of the, the, the rich nuance of the perfect word. So here he says, our joy is being full. Our joy is full of things. get more full of, more full of, more full of joy. When so we meet, are struggling with joy, it is always there. We have it already with us in the fullest sense. God is withholding any of his joy from us. And sometimes when we're not when we're struggling with sin, we're not thinking about things that, we are ours. Fuller at one time than another. It also teaches that the joy of a believer depends much on his fervency and earnestness in prayer. He that prays little and coldly must not expect to know much of joy and peace in his But then the J.C. says, Let the lesson sink down our hearts. Of all the list of Christian duties, there is none to which there is such abounding encouragement as a prayer. It is a duty which concerns all. High and low, rich and poor, learned and unlearned, all must pray. It is a duty for which all are accountable. All cannot read or hear or sing, but all who have the spirit of adoption can pray. Above all, it is a duty in which everything depends on the heart and motive within. Our words may be feeble and ill-chosen, and our language broken and undramatical and unworthy to be written down, but if the heart be right, it matters not. He that sits in heaven can spell out the meaning of every petition that ends up in the name of Jesus and can make the actor know and feel that he receives it. Keeping up that habit, we shall find strength for duty, comfort in trouble, guidance in perplexity, hope in sickness, support in death. Faithful is he that promised, your joy shall be full. He will keep his word Two provisions, first or two that Jesus provides by making that treatment. Joy, joy in his resurrection in his person, and prayer and praying in peace. The same way clarifying Revelation, the third provision, Jesus says this in verses 25 to 28. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not save you, that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed like me from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And Jesus is telling you that in other countries, and to bring you peace, you're going to have clear your understanding, you're going to have more clarity on the things that I have been telling you. I will no longer. Of speech. What does that mean? Well, Jesus spoke in lots of different ways to Sometimes he used parables. Parables were um, ways of hiding the truth and the meaning of his teaching from the unbelieving Jews. Think about like in Matthew 13, he tells a parable of the sower. Even the disciples were like, hey, Jesus, what does that mean? And he goes and explains that to them. Many times it's a parable, no, that wasn't a parable, but you when i talking about parables here, though, But figures of speech. Jesus spoke with such a way that sometimes enigmatic, cryptic, it doesn't always mean a figure of speech, like a metaphor or a simile, but just kind of obscure. Examples just in our text that we've looked at, John 14, 16, Jesus uses some, figures, uh, some uh, cryptic meaning, so he said in John 14, 7 through 8, this is on page 5, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. And so it so says, Lord, show us the Father and the for us." Jesus is speaking super clearly. It's still kind of confusing. The disciples are still kind of like can you show us the Father? And like, I, I have, have you not known me this long? Right, there's still some confusion for them. John chapter 16, verse 16 says, a little while, you will no longer see me, and in a little while, you will see me. That's not super clear, right? He say, I'm going to die, and you're not seeing me. I'm straight into you will see me. Right? It's not always being super clear. And then in verse, uh, verse 21, he uses another illustration to speak of their anguish. So this was um, this is how I interpret it. Jesus' teaching was foggy to the disciples' eyes because they did not understand the resurrection. It was like watching a TV movie without the special glasses. So it wasn't that Jesus was talking in a way that was impossible to understand. Jesus wasn't hiding things from them on purpose. Jesus was trying to use language that would help them. The Jesus always understood that it wasn't until after the cross that all of this would be clear. I really like that illustration. I like watching the street the movie without the special glasses. But the resurrection would become a spectacle that enabled them to see clearly. Everything would change from black and white to color, shadow to substance, fog to clarity. Rick Holland says this. it he says here in John 16:25, the contrast is between what is enigmatic or cryptic during the ministry of Jesus and what becomes plain or clear after Jesus ascends in an exaltation into the Spirit. None of the gospel writers suggest that any of Jesus' disciples made much sense of this until after the resurrection. Jesus would them to They would have greater clarity, and Jesus would be able to speak more plainly to them. But this plain speech that Jesus is going to give them, this clarity revelation, is what was going to bring them greater peace as they continue on in ministry. Rick Collins says this at the bottom of page five. Our knowledge of God's word is commensurate with our joy. There is a correlative relationship. Quote, spiritual ignorance fosters hopeless grief. Where there is hopeless grief, there is spiritual ignorance. Revelation sustains and restores joy. We, on this side of Revelation, have a unique blessing of the disciples. We Once the resurrection happens, you're going to understand that you're going to continue. And I won't have to speak so statistically anymore, but I will be more upfront with you because the resurrection will be too spectacle to understand it. And that's what we're going to do. The last thing you can gives to this Bible is a to end as they minister to the 29 33. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. The disciples here overestimated their faith. They overestimated their knowledge. Ah, Jesus, now you're speaking plainly to us. We're wrong, but we're following you now. We totally understand. This is great. And Jesus kind of calls them out. I, I think the tone that you should read this question is not sarcastic, but a little bit like, really guys, do you really now believe? No. Because you don't fully understand. Because then in verse 3, he says, behold, the hour is coming." Literally, like, it's about to happen in just an hour when Jesus is betrayed. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. Really, you know what happened when came in Judas' case was the the Roman cohort disciples dispersed. All of them ran away. They didn't want to be arrested. And, um, you guys don't fully understand when you're fleeing and scattering them. You'll demonstrate in order to help them not be discouraged too fast. Yet yeah, I'm not alone. Even though you guys are going to leave me, I'm not alone. For the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. You should have courage. I have overcome the kind of why, why would you speak to me? Thank you. going to face that. But sandwich. That statement that you are going to face tribulation is sandwiched between two promises. My peace. In me you have peace. In the world, tribulation. In me, peace. What's peace? God told you, your team is going to win. You look at the scoreboard and the opposing team is ahead of you by 30 points. And there's only two minutes left in the fourth quarter. You might be tempted to doubt or you trust that God says the victories are there. You're going to win. Do not be discouraged. Take heart, get out there, and keep serving. That is all the time we have today I'm going to over. Next week we we'll start John chapter 17. A high preaching prayer. It's gonna be awesome. Brent uh, is gonna be teaching for me, and then to be after that, because I'll be preaching next week. Um, but I'm really looking forward to uh, getting on the back end of John 17 and getting to teach through that. It's gonna be a really rich passage. But uh, thanks everybody.